one of the things I'm aware is I'm not one of the people who come in and says in so many words, uh, all of you folks are young, smart, hardworking, and driven by good values, it'll be fine. I'm the guy who comes in and says, uh, this is going to be hard, and you're going to cry at night. And I'm not telling you that so that you pack up your bags and you go home because it's not worth anything. I'm telling you that so that when it happens, uh, you know it's not evidence of failure. And you prepare. Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad we're here together. And I used to do this manipulative thing with my kids when they were little. And I wanted them to try something. Instead of saying, ooh, this is good, or I think you really like this, or hey, come on over here and give this a shot. I would go like, listen, you're not going to want any part of this. This is, this is not for you, kiddo. This is, this is too heavy. This is too hard. This is too spicy, whatever it is. And it keeps going, no, no, give me a chance. I want to try it. And it was cheap and manipulative. And I'm not going to do that today. But I am going to tell you that this conversation I'm about to share with you is not for everybody. Um, a lot of you that follow the show that have known me for a long time know that I am I don't want to say obsessed, but I'm passionate about bringing people together in community and trying to create spaces and experiences and gatherings and ways of talking to each other that draw us closer together and enable us to really help each other grow and really help each other make the most of this life. And uh, a few months ago, a friend of mine who's into the same stuff, Peter Montoya, who some of you heard on a long ago podcast with me, um, he sent me a note and he said, man, I was at the gym. I started talking with this guy who was lifting next to me and oh my gosh, he is the real deal. And he introduced me to Charles Vogel, who it turns out had written a book called The Art of Community. And is he's one of those consultant guys who works with corporations and all sorts of stuff, does all this impressive stuff. But what impressed me the most when I got to talking to Charles, um, before we decided to do this podcast was he had done a lot of research into what makes communities thrive. In much the same way that my, my one of my favorite authors, Martin Sigelman, who wrote Flourish, had studied you know healthy people that were happy and said, what are the characteristics of a flourishing life? And sort of tried to codify that. Charles has done that about communities in cultures all over the world. And uh, as soon as I started talking with him, I thought, this is amazing. I wanna share this with my crowd because so many people in this audience, you may not be one of them, but there's so many people in this audience who are trying to start communities, who want to be able to spot a healthy community because they want to be part of it, who used to love being part of church and now they don't believe in God and they're trying to figure out like, where do I find that kind of, you know, proactively good group of people that will help me move in that direction. And, and Charles, all I can say is like, he's kind of written the book that I always wanted to be able to recommend to people. And uh, 
So anyway, I, th I hope you like this conversation. It's not for everyone, but I think there's something in it for everyone. But I'm going to be honest with you. By the end of the conversation, and you'll hear this, I decide like, look, we're going to do a we're going to do a conversation about every chapter in this book. We're going to break this thing down. We are finally going to do a, you know, kind of, I don't want to say step by step, but like a, a, a dissection of what makes a, a healthy community go. And that's not going to be for everybody. So we're going to do those as bonus episodes. Um, that we'll tag them on at the end of the week. We're going to go back to the regular humanize me format. There'll be some conversations. There'll be some Q and A's. Um, I even got some story podcasts to do in the, in the queue, but these other ones are going to be bonus podcasts. And, and I guess if we were like cutthroat, we would put these, you know, behind the Patreon paywall and would say, listen, these are for people that sponsor the podcast only, but I know that not everybody can afford to sponsor the podcast. So instead of putting them behind the paywall, I'm going to, I'm going to just ask if, if you dig this stuff, um, this community building stuff, and if you decide to like get with us on the bonus episode train, jump over the paywall yourself and just become a, you know, a dollar a month, $5 a month. And the reason is because if we got a whole bunch of new dollar a month sponsors or $5 a month sponsors, it would just make it so much easier for us to know people are into this stuff. And it would also make it easier for me to go to some foundations and to some other funders and say, listen, what we're doing matters to people. You should support it. So that's my pitch. Um, and, and if you, if you've never looked at us on Patreon, it's kind of cool. There's some neat stuff there. There's some funny jokes. You should check it out. Um, and if you want to respond to any of this stuff or find me as a, as a coach or a counselor, or send me a letter telling me something important in the world or somebody we ought to have on the podcast, you can always find me at bartcampolo.org. Um, so that's it. This is me and Charles Vogel. I hope you dig it. I'll catch you on the other side. Well, Charles, where are you, man? I'm in Oakland. I'm at home. You're in Oakland. Okay. Yeah. And and how long have you lived in Oakland? We moved to Oakland in 2014, but this house we moved in in 2016. Okay, so you moved there four years ago. And when I was reading your book, I got this impression, that, like, is Oakland the place that you would say that you have sort of found more community than other places that you've lived? Well, so I've been globally nomadic for a while now. Um you know, Los Angeles, uh, Northern Zambia, New York, DC, and then of course, New Haven, Connecticut for seven years. And um, in, that, in that time, I've matured myself and learned uh, what works for me and, and my work largely is revolved around bringing people together for what I thought was important work, be it genocide activism, labor, labor rights, that kind of thing. And so we spent a lot of time in New Haven and uh, built a very robust community there. And when I came out here, there were two things going on. One is I just older and more mature and I knew what I wanted as far as to how to surround myself with friends and the kind of people. And one of the things that's clear to me now, and you've read the book, so you uh, have read some of my thoughts on this, is this idea about the inner rings, how it's easy for us all to get caught up on pursuing the next inner ring simply because there's always another inner ring that looks cooler than the one we're in. And some place in my life now where when people uh, invite me into inner rings or really more often people dangle their inner rings in front of me, 
I'm much better at, at identifying them for what they are. Those are just more inner rings. And I've made a choice that I don't pursue inner rings. Uh, that's not to say inner rings are bad or if I'm invited into one and they look compelling that I won't go. But this idea that I don't wake up in the morning and think, what can I do to get into Bart's inner ring, right? Or how did Bart get, get into the inner ring? What can I do so that Bart will invite me in? Like, I just don't do that anymore. Uh, it, it, it taxes my life. Um, it's not a lot of fun and there's no end to it. So by just approaching my life in a way that says, I'm not going to, you know, do what I need to do to entertain Bart to get into a ring that relieves me of all that pressure. And now I get to just invite people that I want to be closer to me, to be closer to me. And some of them will say yes. And some of them will be, say no. And over years, okay, we'll but, collect that, that group. Okay. But, but how did you make that decision? Cause I, I've never, I've never thought of it that way. I know mm -hmm. that's the reality. I know that's the reality for most people. Mm -hmm. The weird thing is like I've led, led this sort of, I feel like I've led this sort of charmed life where I always felt like I was, I was in the inner circle. Mm -hmm. Like I never, I, I never felt that. And I, and I know, I know other people that feel that same way, but I've known so many more people who would say they always felt like there was another ring that they couldn't get to. They always felt that. Yeah, I would say, in my experience, my understanding is that's the majority of the world. Me too. Uh, and um, I definitely lived in that. And, it, and we differ in which inner rings we want to be in, but nonetheless, they're there. And in my yeah. life, I mean, we can just talk about what I'm going through now. My book came out just over a year ago, so I'm in relative terms a new uh, published author and thought leader. And I get calls seemingly all the time about some group that, quote unquote, would be good for me to be connected with, end quote. Um, all you have to do is this thing, you know, write these blogs, go to this conference, pay this fee, right? Uh, show up to this thing, fly to the city, whatever. And I'm, I'm aware now at this age and there's not enough experiences that those, those invitations go on forever. And I, and I can just burn myself out trying to hang out with groups that quote unquote are good for me to be connected with. And I had a call with um, a successful author within the year and I was stunned on a phone call how, Wittingly or otherwise, he name dropped other famous authors that you and I know and uh, letting me know that he hangs with them and that uh, the implicit message in the call was that if I'm nice to him and help him out, then I'll be invited you know, to hang out with them too. Well, I wrote a book about community and all I heard was, I'm part of a cool inner ring, you're not in it, but if you prove to me you're good enough, maybe I'll invite you in. And of course, he didn't know in that phone call that I have made an explicit choice in my life. I just don't play that game. So if you're opening our relationship with that invitation, I know exactly how many more minutes I want to spend playing your game. <laughs> so, so what I want to figure out though is because I, I know I have. I mean, I'm literally thinking about a guy right now in Philadelphia mm -hmm. who who I have have sort of been like a mentor, tried to be like a mentor figure too, but I don't do very well. And, and part, and what I mean by I don't do very well is I can't seem to get him out of trying, striving mm -hmm. to, to reach that next level. And, I, and so it, what I'm like, if, you know, just for starters, I mean, we're not even, I mean, this is just me. I, I'm desperate to know mm -hmm. this. Like we'll edit this out. I don't care. Like, 
how did you recognize that that's what you were doing and come to the place where you're like, I'm not going to do that anymore. Like how did, who, did somebody help you to see it? Or did you just like wake up one day with an epiphany experience? Well, I don't have an epiphany experience that I can relate to you now. Um, and I, there was no given mentor that, and so many were said the right words. And then my worldview shifted uh, the way I would describe it just reflecting on it now with your prompting is it's a spiritual uh, growth for me that um, I, I think uh, I can't speak for everybody. Um, my understanding is it's a very common stage of life to go through what I call the striving stage. I think different traditions um, call it different things, but this part of our lives where through acts, through, through deeds, we're trying to define an identity and uh convince others that we have merit. And um, often that means jumping through the hoops put in front of us in our culture, right? And, and, and here in the United States, there are some very common hoops that, that people want to see us jump through. Um, and, and in my experience, people who are very driven and eventually do things that make a big difference in the world, uh, at some point they have to go through that stage and then come out the end, end of it. And it might, maybe they're lucky, it only takes five years. For me, I think it took more like 20, 10 maybe more, but no less than 10. And you know, I think so several fun- things. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but like I just got done reading this book that my son asked me to read, uh, Jordan Peterson's mm-hmm. book. And I swear, I mean, I feel like he was, he was saying, hey, this is what the game is. You need to prove your worth. Mm-hmm. You need to, like if you're a young man, mm-hmm. you need to prove your worth to a woman. You need to demonstrate, define your identity and say, this is who I'm going to be. And pro-. and so like, he's almost writing like, embrace, embrace that struggle, embrace that striving stage. And, and I feel like what you're saying is, is like, it wasn't until I stopped striving that I had any peace in my life. Well, I don't, um, in my imagination, at least, the striving stage is a stage we got to get through. So you embrace it in as much as uh, you need to go through it and experiencing it, and, and whatever you learn from it will inform you for the next stage of life and, in broad, broad terms here. And it's not that deeds don't matter, right? Um, the question jumps to my mind when we think, well, what deeds will you do in the next five years or 10 years, starting at, let's just say 25, so 25, 35. Uh, what will you do, who will you do it for, and who are you trying to impress, right? Now, if there's a partner that you'd like them to commit the rest of their life to living with you and supporting you in sickness and health, then sure, I imagine there are some deeds that are important to do to demonstrate that that choice is a good one for them, right? But that's a very specific, that's very specific, right? Uh, mm-hmm. What I'm thinking is, is broadly, we get caught up in this idea that we just need to accomplish a lot and often accomplish a lot relative to others, right? So it's not just that we're contributing or doing something great, but we want to show others that we're better than other people. Maybe not everybody, but the 50th percentile. And... Um, it, it comes from a fear, this, this fear that if we don't, we won't be embraced, we won't be supported, uh, people won't want to be around us. And it's driven by fear. And uh, hopefully you've also felt with me, Bart, that when we do something driven by fear, it's in a very, very different thing. 
the experience is different, the results are different, people around us feel differently than if we do something driven by contribution and generosity, right? So if I'm going to bring my now wife flowers, am I doing it because I'm afraid that if I don't bring flowers at a certain interval, she will leave me because I'm not good enough. Maybe, maybe I'm not rich enough to buy flowers, right? And at least my imagination, when I bring my flowers, because I want her to have a token of my uh, relationship with her and my commitment to her and my hope that when she lives her life with me, it's full of joy and beauty. That's a very different experience to get flowers 52 times a year or whatever. Right from that guy. Yeah. And so it's not that the deed is bad. It's how we relate to it. Right. And hopefully I'm giving flowers because I want to contribute to a relationship and contribute, contribute to somebody else's life. And to turn to Bart on a podcast and say, listen, Bart, I delivered flowers to my wife 52 times last year. What are you up to now? Yeah. It's all about this. It's interesting because in my relationship with that young man that I was telling you about, that's kind of, he, he often will praise me by saying like, Hey, I saw you did this thing and it got this many views or, you know, you're better than that person at this. And he, and he, like, it's his love language is Mm -hmm. to tell me that is to, is to compare me to other people favorably. And, and my desperate hope is that he would stop, you know, and he, and he's sort of like, I want to be like you because like you, you're, at, in that inner circle mm-hmm. that I want to be in. And my desperate hope is to try to say to him, like, stop comparing. Mm-hmm. Like the comparison thing, you know, it's kind of the Facebook, it's almost become a, um, it's almost become a cliche, but like when you compare yourself on Facebook, what the studies are now proving is that whether you win the comparison mm-hmm. or lose the comparison, it diminishes your experience of your own life. Mm-hmm. That just the the act of comparing is mm-hmm. is poisonous, and so it sounds like what you're. It sounds like at some point, I guess you, and, and maybe there is no magic formula, but like in your own life, if it sounds like you feel like you sort of came to the other side, it's like I don't want to be driven by the desire to to like get to the next inner circle. Yeah, well, at some point, I under, understand. I want to say inside that that's a game that doesn't end and there's no way to win it. And when I leave this planet, um, I'm far more interested that, that what I've contributed, be it conversations with you or books that I've released or people I've spent time with, that that's enriching the world I want to enrich rather than has a scorecard with a high point number on it. Yeah. Yeah. I've known I've known a handful of people that never struggled with that comparison mm-hmm. game very much. I've known th- I've known an almost endless stream of people for whom that is the mm-hmm. dominant game that they're playing. I know very few people that played the game for a length of time and then decided, you know what, this isn't a game I want to play. You can't win it anyway and stepped out of it and successfully stepped out of it. And you know, uh, and not necessarily successfully, I mean, like, like, look, everybody, I've stepped out of it. I'm in the inner circle of people who have stepped out of the inner circle game. But no, like, but just on a, on a level of just going like, yeah, I just mm-hmm. don't play anymore. I, I'm, not, I'm, not paying atti- I'm not paying attention. And so, to, like, to me, that is just such a remarkable decision. Um, and it's sort of almost like mental hygiene to go like, that way mm-hmm. of thinking isn't good for me. And so I'm not, I'm just not going to do it anymore. 
Um, do, do, and, and does it take any effort on your part oh, not to do it anymore? Does your, do you have to, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you have to kind of, you catch yourself, you catch yourself looking? Yes. And then, and choosing, um, and I don't want to misrepresent this. Like the thought that, that occurred to me is that someone might interpret our conversation and say, well, Charles isn't in a rings or, or he doesn't go there. He doesn't care. And that's not true at all. Um, it's just that how I relate to them is different. So um, you reached out to me and you reached out to me because I have a book out and I have a, and that's an inner ring, right? Published authors in a certain area of the writing universe. And you reach out to me and now we're having this conversation and uh, maybe that's another inner ring, like thought leaders that you think are worth sharing with your audience. Right. And, and I didn't say, no, no, that's an inner ring, but you know that I didn't hunt you down and then dance for you. Right get in. And then if this conversation goes well, and only you'll know that, um, you may invite me to meet other people that are uh, commit nurturing the world as best you know how with the tools you have, right? And that might be another invitation, which is all to say that uh, there's this irony that the more I focus on actually trying to use my time to make a difference in ways that I hope will work, the invitations come and the relationships come. And then of course, what really happens is they're based on, based on authentic collaboration and vision. And that's far better than getting on some spreadsheet of people allowed in the door. Yeah. Yeah. That's what my wife always said. My wife always said is, you know, that's your gimmick. Like she's like, that's your shtick is because you don't care mm -hmm. if you get invited, it feels like you get invited. Um, and she's like, but like, I, I know you're not really doing it in order to get invited, but she said it is that kind of ironic that the mm -hmm. less you care or the, the less you, you, you know, the less you, you mm -hmm. angle for the invitation, the more likely to somebody go like, Hey, he's, he's not angling for an invitation. Let's invite him. Um, and so, but it, it's a hard thing to yeah. let go of for a lot of people. But what your wife, and, uh, you know, mentioned half I, the story or, or. It's, it's, no, it's not as much as half the story, right? Because the reason you're also getting invited, whether that's a physical room or what have you, is you also have something to contribute. So it's not that you're, it's not that you're simply not angling. You're spending your time doing something else that when other people, not everybody, when certain people find it, say, gee, I'd like to have the guy doing that near us. And so by con concentrating on what you're contributing, yeah. that's what makes you compelling. But if you sit home and watch Battlestar Galactica all the time, which... I have done, uh, not all the time, but I've spent a lot of time watching Battlestar Galactica. My guess is not a lot of people invite me into their inner rings simply because I stay home and watch that. Right. Because of that. You know, I, I think you said it really well. And that is that, that it has to do with moving from fear-based mm -hmm. activity to gener to generosity. Um, and, and sort of going like, I'm going to, like, and, and this really is a gimmick for me is that, you know, that my mom, not a gimmick, but like something my mom and dad instilled in me really early on is they were like, if you can make other people's lives better, you will always be welcome everywhere you go. Like if, if you can, if you can make people feel good about themselves, if you can show interest, if you can create good experiences for people that feel are feeling left out, like you will always be okay. And, and so, I mean, they sort of taught me generosity. Um, but I remember my mom used to tell these stories, uh, 
when I was a kid going to bed, she would tell these stories. They were called Billy Anthony stories, thinly veiled, because my name is Bart Anthony. And so in the story, the kid was always my age. And he was always in some, he always would come across somebody in some level of distress. And Billy Anthony's big shtick was that he could drive anything. Like he was eight years old, but he could drive a bulldozer, an airplane, you know, a, a tank, whatever it was, he knew how to drive it. And people would always say, no, no, you can't do it. And he would say, I can, I can, I drive it. And then he would save the day. And afterwards, at the end of the story, his mother would always say, and how do you feel, Billy Anthony, now that you've helped somebody? And, and he would pause and he would say, I feel all warm and good all over. And she would say, that's right, you do. And, and, and like the idea was that the story, the idea of the story was she was trying to teach me from the earliest days, like, if you help people, you're gonna feel great. If you've helped people, people are gonna want you around. And uh, that generosity thing is, is kind of the key to the whole ball game, isn't it? Uh, generosity is a big part of it. Um, so the, the wisdom your parents gave you uh, sounds like it, it nurtured you as a boy and has informed you well. Uh, the part that struck out to me now that we're now you and me older is that the way you described to me is very broad. They will always, um, they will always let you in or invite you in. And this idea that it makes you feel good. And I think that's perfectly good wisdom to share with an eight-year-old. You know that we work with adults and sometimes adults who have worked through really tough uh, issues on in really tough places. And so what just jumps to my mind is the way to nuance that now that we're both past eight, right? And you didn't ask me for advice, but when (laughs) when I talk to people who do, it's that we need to get to a place where we help when it doesn't feel good. Right. We, we don't do the ROI um, if I contribute what, what's, the, um, what's the points for me, be it uh, emotional experience or otherwise, right? Karmic uh, scorekeeping. And uh, guess what? Um, if, you're, if we're working on really important stuff, and you know that I've worked on human rights in Africa and genocide education you know, around the world, uh, my experience is there's always somebody who'll come after you. There's always some power structure that um, is comfortable with the status quo. And when we show up and say, wow, this status quo really sucks for whatever reason, we need healing here, we need more access here or more justice, there's somebody um, who's willing to do the best they can to, to tear us down. And so as we grow older and we want to make a difference, we need to understand that that, that is also the reality of stepping forward and demonstrating generosity or, or stepping into a drive to make contribution. Yeah. It does get more sophisticated because, you know, what's interesting is, is that when I've encountered that kind of opposition, um, I, I always think I go back to my hotel room or I go back to my mm-hmm. house or whatever. And I look in the mirror and I go like, yeah, they don't want me. And that didn't feel all warm and good inside. Like people didn't respond well mm-hmm. to what I did. But, but if I know I've done the right thing, I still like the, like, I like the guy looking back mm. at me. Um, and that's its own kind of good feeling. Like even in the midst of pain and suffering, I remember, you know, even in the midst of rejection and, and, and opposition, there is something about the, 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 the reward of, 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 of self-respect, of, of feeling like I'm doing the right thing. And I think that, I think sometimes that, that reward is underestimated 
the 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 joy of in the midst of very painful sacrifice sort of going like yeah but I'm the kind of person that makes these kind of sacrifices and I kind of like that about myself. Um, and it sounds, it sounds kind of, I don't know, it sounds self-righteous, but I feel like you have to, you have to enjoy the experience of, of knowing you're doing the right thing, especially when you're getting the shit kicked out of you for doing the right thing. Okay. Well, I'm delighted to hear that on the darkest nights, there's, uh, a glimmer of satisfaction on your end. Uh, I know in my experience and when I work with other people on, who are struggling on important issues, the dark nights are dark. And um, sometimes it's all we can do to remember that, um, you know, we're not wasting our lives and maybe, uh, maybe the things we're doing will make a difference uh, in a positive direction. Well, and, and that's a killer segue because in my experience, the, the, the most powerful thing that in the dark night that keeps yeah. people going, one of the most powerful things is if they either have the in, in real life right there with them, their tribe, or if they feel the, the sort of the support of their tribe at their back. But if they feel like they have a group of people around them that confirm to them in that moment, hey, this does matter. This is the right thing to be doing. Like, we're proud of you. Like, or, or, or they can conjure up that image of their inner, of, of their, of their community and say, you know what? Um, this may seem crazy, the suffering that I'm going through, but, but if I was back in the bosom of my community, everybody would say, yeah, that's, that's what we're about here. That's, that's our, that's our shared value. We do this stuff. Um, and wouldn't you say that when you've been in, out there in in the world with people that are trying to do really hard things, it's really important to have a community of people who share that value and who think it's worth doing and who and who affirm each other in doing it? Well, yes, you use you use a few words there that I would use differently. You use the word tribe, and that's a it's a broader term that I would use than someone's support community. Um. I'll just share that uh, when I'm invited to teach or be an instructor at leadership intensives or retreats or whatever they're calling it at that time, uh, one of the things I'm aware is I'm not one of the people who come in and says in so many words, uh, all of you folks are young, smart, and hardworking, and driven by good values. It'll be fine. I'm, I'm not the guy who says that. I'm the guy who comes in and says, uh, this is going to be hard. And uh, you're going to cry at night. And if you have the ability to, you're going to call your mom. And I'm not telling you that so that you pack up your bags and you go home because it's not worth anything. I'm telling you that so that when it happens, uh, you know it's not evidence of failure. And you prepare. And one of the ways we can prepare is you can be really clear why you're doing what you're doing. So when those nights come, you remember. And the second thing is you have the people around you who can hold you up through those nights. And as a practical matter, those nights last more than one night. Yeah. And so I think it's critically important that when someone takes on uh, a challenge that, that either is, Nobody's done before and maybe is impossible or seems impossible. 
that they know that those days are coming. So they'll realize that's not evidence of failure when they come and they're not standing alone when those times come. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's, that's what I'm interested in talking to you about on the deepest level mm-hmm. is, is because mm-hmm. I feel like the book you wrote is really aimed at people mm-hmm. um, who, who either want to, who either want to start a community of some kind. They want to, they want to make a change in the world and they want to draw some people in to do that together. They want to start some kind of community or they're part of a community that isn't realizing that isn't living up to its potential and they want to kind of make it better. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and I, it sounds like in your work, as you've traveled around, you just are, you, you've been in a lot of scenarios in which you've encountered those two groups of people, like people that want to start something um, or people that are in something and they're like, this could be better than it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I guess when you, when you think like, when you think of a person leading a community, what, what do you think is kind of the, I don't know, qualification to, to, to either start a community or to, or to make a community better? Like, what is it that defines a community builder, a community leader to you? Right. So for the purposes of my work, I define a community as a group of people who share mutual concern for one another. Uh, which is different from a group because you might have a group of people who all are chaplains or all have podcasts, right? Or all have written books. But if we haven't grown relationships such that we care about one another, um, I would say that's not a community. So when I talk about someone being a leadership and taking leadership and creating community, we're talking about somebody who wants to invest to grow that uh, mutual concern for one another. And so prerequisite in my mind is someone who wants to do that. Um, if what I really want is I want people to tell me I'm great all the time, then that I'm going to be a lousy community builder. Um, if I want somebody who simply wants to sell more stuff and I call my marketing campaign community building, I think I'm going to be a lousy community builder. Uh, but if genuinely I would like Bart to meet somebody else and in that experience gain a relationship where two people care more about each other than they do now, right? Be that in four hours or four weeks, uh, that's, the prerequisite, right? And I hear the term community used all the time and I've learned I need to ask uh, what that person means when they use that term. Um, I was speaking to somebody um, at a party recently who's very involved in an online gaming platform. And he said he goes there for the community and I asked him what he meant by that. And it turned out that he doesn't see nor speak to anybody else on that platform at any other time except when he's following one broadcaster on that platform. And he used the word community and I didn't, I wouldn't consider that community at all. The way he described their relationship, it it was one of fan and celebrity. And there's nothing wrong with that. And he clearly liked following that broadcaster uh, as a celebrity, but it wasn't community. So I bring that up just to distinguish that I'm talking about this very specific thing. And then I would say the first step that I'm always wondering about when someone says, well, gee, I, I'm failing to build this community or I want to build this community, what's the first step? Um, I want to know, well, what have you invited people to and who have you invited? And I'm shocked how many people um, aren't making invitations or they're sending out email blasts 
and then shocked that they don't get a lot of response. And what they're often saying to me in different words is, Charles, what I really want is a magic email blast that will make people feel connected. And I haven't seen that blast, and I think that if it existed, we'd all know it, you know, and we'd use it. So the next, the next thing in line after you have an intention is uh, the willingness to invite. And along with that comes the willingness to take no's. Um, I literally fly around the country teaching executives about creating community, be it an organization or a field. I've had way more no's to things that I've created than yeses. Way, way, way more no's. But people don't invite me around the country because people have said no to my invitations, right? It's because people have said yes. And I just understand that's the cost of being someone who steps out and brings people together is I need to take the rejection, knowing that uh, the rejections don't count. It's just the yeses. Yeah. So in the first chapter of your book, before you get to the seven principles, um, mm -hmm. you, you, I, I thought you did a really good job of describing for somebody how to know a community, how to recognize a community when they see one. And, and I wonder, you know, I, I think that in some ways, sometimes there are people that, that they like the idea of mutual concern and maybe they're willing to invite, but they, they don't necessarily know what a community looks like because maybe they've never been part of mm -hmm. one. And so when you're teaching people, when you like, like when you're talking to people about what to look for, what do you what do you look for? Like what to you know? Like what are the characteristics of a community for you? I mean, you had four of them in the book, and I, I mean, I'm like just run them down because mm -hmm. I thought they were really good. I mean, four uh, things that show up in communities over time. You mean because they're not necessarily things that I look for on the first day, but I know that they will those elements will show up. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have the book right in front of me. Do you want me to fetch it? So that no, I, can... I, I got them for you, man. I can tell you what they are. Okay. Cause I remember one is, um, <clears throat> I mean, shared values, um, shared values, uh, pres moral prescriptions, membership, identity, moral mm -hmm. prescriptions and insider understanding. And, and, you know, it's funny because like in the book, you really you you concentrate really hard on the second one on membership identity and you, yeah. you spend a lot of time there and then with moral prescriptions you're sort of like look this is gonna happen don't apologize for it like like mm -hmm. whatever group you're in there's gonna be something even if you're just right. a bike club you're gonna be like good bikers stop at the light bad bikers blow right through it like we stop at the light like okay. it's immoral not to stop if, if in in this group it's wrong not to stop at the light Right, right. But those were right. the four. Four um, litter, right? Like you don't want people in your bike club leaving power bar wrappers all along the road or the trail. Yeah, yeah. right. And so even like if, if it, even if it's not like a church or a humanist club, you're right. There's more. There's morality even in bike clubs. Right, right. So you said what I look for. So since obviously listeners have not read the book, uh, the first one is this idea of their shared values, and. When you say, well, Charles, if someone wants to start a community, what's the prescription? Well, the prescription is you got to, A, want to bring people together as opposed to just want to sell more stuff, right? And the people you want to bring together need to share some value. And in the book I write about, in my loneliness, following the wisdom of some mentors, uh, my wife and I uh, created a Friday night dinner, 
And uh, all that meant was we made an enormous amount of food and invited people in my graduate school on a Friday night to sit down for a four-hour dinner at the end of the week. And the dinner was provided as a gift. So uh, you didn't have to buy in. You didn't have to submit an application. You just showed up. And presumably, if somebody was really rude, we'd ask them never to come back again. But that didn't happen. <clears throat> well, if you don't want to spend your Friday night sitting down among strangers and talking, right, if you'd rather be watching sports or you'd be rather be drinking or you'd be rather dancing, uh, this is a terrible event for you to come to on a Friday night. But you need to value a deep conversation without distraction with people you've ever met before for four hours, right? And God bless you if you want to go dancing, and God bless you if you'd rather you know, go camping on a Friday night. But but we're not doing that, <laughs> okay? And the reason it's important to say that, even though it might seem self-evident, is I'll talk to people who want to build more cohesion in the community, and I'll ask, well, what do you value? You know, what does someone need to value to participate? And they'll say, everybody belongs here, Charles. Nobody should be kept out. And my reaction to that is always, well, that's uh, just plain not true, right? Uh, there's a difference between self-selection and um, everybody belongs, right? If, if you can't think of one person in the entire world, alive or now dead, who doesn't belong to come to your event, then I can't distinguish the difference between your community and no community, right? Because like, if I meet anybody in the world and say, do you belong in Bart's community? And they're like, yes, of course, everybody belongs. Well, then Bart doesn't really have a community, right? It's, it's not distinguished from the world. And Bart might say, well, well, gee, the people that I want to bring together are people who uh, want to get a phone call at 3 a.m. from somebody who lives near there when they're having an emergency so that if there's a way they can help at 3 a.m., they will. And if you don't want to get that phone call after you've you know, spent time talking to somebody, then I don't know if you should be in this community, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you're yeah. just, I don't know, wasting time or something. So, yeah, no, we, 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 uh, we just, we, we had a group when I first moved back to Cincinnati, a number of people sort of reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, you did this human, you did this humanist community thing out in, uh, at USC. Like, are you going to do something like that here? And so eventually, you know, you have lunch with those people and say, oh, let's, you know, everybody come to dinner. Like maybe like the dinner mm -hmm. you were doing. My wife and I cooked up a big dinner and all these people came and people started, we started having dinner together mm -hmm. every couple of weeks. And, uh, but it was interesting because initially the only thing they had in common was like, Hey, they like they liked me and my wife, but eventually, you know, we sat down and I said like, look, like if this was mm -hmm. a band, this is the kind of music we're going to play. Like I'm interested mm -hmm. in doing this, but this is going to be a group of people that commit themselves to loving each other. Like, and I'm going to use the word love really openly here because Sometimes when you get in these secular mm -hmm. circles, people, they want to talk about, you know, you know, truth and reason and, you know, human, human flourishing. And I'm like, those are all great words. But like, like, I just want to be real clear. Like, I'm hoping to build a group of people that will actually love each other. I didn't use mm -hmm. the three o'clock in the morning okay. thing, but I should have. And it was like an audible sigh of relief from a lot of people in that room. They were like... I thought mm -hmm. that might be why we were here, mm -hmm. but I wasn't sure. <laughs> and so some people really bought in. And then the next week, mm -hmm. there were some people that were gone and, mm -hmm. they never and they never came back. And you go like, well, that was bad. If you hadn't said anything, you'd have everybody. And I go like, actually, if we hadn't said anything, we didn't really have anybody. 
for what I wanted to do. Right. For your vision. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And what I love about your example, Bart, is we were talking earlier about striving, right? So if you just wanted to brag how big your dinner parties were, you would have made a very, very different choice. Yeah, I suppose so. But you want to bring people together and create relationships that they are literally not creating anywhere else. And if that's 10 people, instead of 75 people, you'd rather take the 10 people. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's funny. One of my favorite images of this stuff is I read that book years ago by Nick Hornby called uh, High Fidelity. And the guy in the book is a Mm -hmm. DJ. And at one point he describes what it's like to, to show up at a party and start playing the music and draw people out on the dance floor and get everybody dancing with each other and having a great time. And he said, if you're a really good DJ, you make that thing happen and they don't even know how much care and thought you put into it. But he said, there's nothing I like more than watching people dance with each other. And I guess for me, I think that that, you know, there's nothing I like more than seeing a group of people start to love each other. And, and to me, like that, you know, that idea of, hey, you know, mutual concern, like that's what we're going to do here. Like anybody interested, anybody want to dance? And if we do it right, it's going to be so much fun. But like, it's very important to be clear. That's, that's what we're going to be doing mutual concern here. And so like, if that, again, like if you value that right on. You know, sort of like if you value funk music, come to the funk music club. But like, if you don't value funk music, we're not going to change and play some polka just to make you happy. Like we're playing funk music here. This is what Mm -hmm. we're doing. And I I guess maybe that's another qualification is the ability to sort of like clarify what, what it is that you, what what it is that you want to make, what kind of community you want to have, what kind of values you want your community to have and be able to articulate them clearly enough that people can, you know, you can invite them and you can say, this is what I'm inviting you into. And then go like, Oh, thanks. Thanks. Like, I'm not interested in that, but thanks for the invitation. Like that they know what they're saying yes or no to. Yeah. One of the, you brought up a really great point and I'm, I'm building on your original question. What's the, what people need to build community uh, along with invitation uh, the fact that you just make invitations right. is to is to make clear to the person getting invited. Well, what is it that you Bart uh, want to invite them to? Right? Is it a polka? Uh, is it funk? Or is it a sound meditation? Right? Uh, um, easy enough, right? And the way I articulate this is, I can say to you, Hey Bart, my wife and I are um, having some pizza at our house on Friday night at six. Uh, you can bring beer if you want. Um, you should totally come. And that's a perfectly good invitation, and you probably heard an invitation like that recently, and you may or may not come, right? But would it be totally different if I said, hey, Bart, this Friday night, my wife and I like to take time where we simply uh, make sure that we're spending time with people we want to know better. And the way we do that is we sit in our home, make sure there's hot food, this week we're going to have pizza, and invite people we want to know better uh, so we can talk with them without distraction. Uh, would you like to come and uh, develop friendship with those who choose to come? Right. By the way, you can bring beer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And because one, I'm inviting you to eat pizza, and the other one, I'm inviting you into a relationship, uh, presumably because authentically that's what I'm scheduling that time on Friday night to do. Right. 
And you may not come to the one where it's only pizza because you may not eat wheat. You may not eat dairy, right? Uh, you may be trying to lose weight and eating more pizza and beer on Friday nights may not be what you should put in your life. But uh, even if that were the case, if I say, well, we're inviting people we'd like to know better by scheduling time to have conversations we don't have anywhere else, you might show up and you might bring alfalfa. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So, hey, hey. so I'm always curious, what are you inviting people to and do they know it? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, and that's where when, you know, you, 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 when you were describing the four things, you, you know, I, I was reading this, I was going like, that's what a person, when they're getting their invitation ready, and I don't mean their email blast. I mean, when they're getting it clear in their mind, what they're trying to do, they go like, okay, you know, these values may, you know, I, I always think that a lot of times you get a lot of nice people together and certain values sometimes emerge that you didn't, that as people get to know each other, they emerge and they change. But you need to know at least something at the at the beginning where you, you go like, right? Hey, these are the values it's going to be about. And then and then when you talked about membership identity, one of the things that you said was like that a membership identity. There are certain questions that a community answers, and and they may not be like universal answers for all time and in, in in every aspect mm -hmm. of a person's life. But they're like when you're in this community, like. Who are who are you in this community? Like who like if, if you're in a bicycle club, like this is a club for cyclists, you know? Like you know who you are and you know how you're supposed to act and you know uh, what was the third one? It was like who you are, how you're supposed to act and what Gosh, do you remember what the third one is? I'm I'm blanking on. Um, I know that they, ha they have to do with uh, the identity is, that's why I wish I had the book in front of me. Uh, the moral prescriptions, the identity values, I don't have in front of my yeah. I'm thinking of the firefighter I wrote about. Right. So they value, their identity is they're the person ready for someone's worst day. And they value months or years of preparation for a single moment. And... Um, whoever the third thing is, right? This idea is like, if you're not willing to put in years of preparation, reading, practicing, mapping out for someone's single worst day, a day you have not predicted, then you should not be part of that firefighter's community. Right. You just want to show up, grab equipment and start swinging when you see someone's in danger. Uh, you are not welcome into their firefighter community, right? That they have and that they have very specific values and the value isn't simply we save people right oh yeah yeah you know what the third one was it was mm -hmm. what do I, it was it was it was who am i how should i act and mm -hmm. what do i believe right and and it did and, and by belief i i didn't get the impression that it was like it, these weren't like airy fairy like you know but like what do i believe about firefighting or what do i believe right. about bicycling yeah. you know like, I, what do i, I believe I remember when Melissa, the firefighter I interviewed for this, was talking with me. Um, she believes, and her community believes, it's worth putting her life at risk to save somebody else. Yeah, 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 yeah. Period. That's and if you, if you don't believe that, then you do not share the identity of her firefighter community. And, of course, that's what, that's what allows her to run into literally a burning building because she believes risking my life is a perfectly good thing to save somebody else. It is. We're done. I'm not going to defend it. And of course, she's in a community of firefighters. So when she does that, 
she literally has people watching her back, literally, right? And if she didn't, she couldn't run into burning buildings the way she does, putting her life at risk to save somebody else. Now, you know, I would love to think of myself as somebody who saves people, even saves people in burning buildings, right? I don't prepare for years for an unpredictable single worst day. I don't, I don't do it. I don't know where the fire hydrants are. I haven't practiced attaching hoses. I haven't learned the codes. And I can maybe share those values, but because I don't share that identity in all those parts, there's no freaking way uh, pe- firefighters like Melissa are going to think I'm a firefighter. <laughs> I'm just not. Now, yeah, it's, it's hilarious because like when you said she was an Oakland firefighter, about, about, about eight, ten years ago, my son was thinking about being a firefighter, and I read this book about this Ivy League mm-hmm. guy, graduated from, you know, University of Pennsylvania, I think, and went to Oakland and decided that he wanted to be a firefighter, and he describes in vivid detail how they initiated him into that mm-hmm. value system. And, and, when, and, when he sh- and, and, and there were all these kind of things that they did, in, not just to prepare him technically, but also to, to sort of say like, this is how we mm-hmm. are here. This is how we think here. And you mentioned later on that she said like, you know, one of the things that we don't say out mm-hmm. loud that we value, but that like, we all have a really mm-hmm. dark sense of humor. Like we've seen a lot of stuff. And like, when we're all together, we tell really dark jokes, like that we wouldn't tell mm-hmm. even around our spouses, but we tell them around each other because that's, you know, now that's not in the manual. But it's a value or it's a behavior. And like, we believe that you have to laugh at this stuff or else it'll destroy you. And that's just like one of those implicit beliefs that they don't say explicitly, but it's it's still there. And I guess my question is for you is when you're, when you're thinking about, when, when somebody talks to you about like the thing about starting a community, do you think people underthink it or overthink it when it comes to all these values well, that are going to characterize their community? And I don't have, I don't have an informed answer of what <laughs> most people do. I think people are in different stages, and I think that uh, people want different kinds of communities. You know, I, I, as you know, I work with people around the country. And part of the workshop that I lead is helping people identify community. Like, and, and what usually comes out of that is they notice they're part of communities they never recognized before. And that could be the people in your coffee shop. That could be that group of friends for breakfast at some interval, right? That you didn't notice that was community. And, and often what comes up is they notice uh, their family is a community that they didn't recognize before. They took it for granted, the gathering for Easter and Thanksgiving and Christmas and birthdays. They didn't understand, oh, wow, that's a community with elders and rituals. And we can, in fact, invest in that and make it better and or make sure we preserve it as elders die. And so in that case, sometimes they're not thinking about it at all, the identity, because they didn't even recognize it as a community. And, of course, when their eyes are informed and they can see, absolutely, this is a community with elders and rituals and, and sacred spaces, you know, be it somebody's home or a park we meet in. Well, now the question is, well, how? You know, they, what is the identity? And then how can we help bring the younger members, which usually means kids, up in that community in a way that's powerful as opposed to taken for granted? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I'm thinking that a mm-hmm. lot of people don't recognize their value, their, their families as communities um, or, or, or intentionally nurture them as communities. And one of the reasons a lot of times is I think people say, like, yeah, you don't understand, like, 
people in my family, we don't have any shared values. They're Trump people. And I've, you know, I voted for Bernie and, uh, or, or they're Christians and I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist or, or, and, and what I always find myself saying is, is like underneath those differences, can you identify any shared value? Cause I bet you can. The, the, you know, e- e- even if, even if you don't share conclusions, there are, first of all, there, if there's mutual concern, that's a, like, if you care about each other, that's a, that's a starting point. But the other thing is, you know, sometimes people will be like, yeah, we, we both value trying to gather the best evidence and then making our judgments based on the best evidence. You said, but you've come to completely different conclusions. You go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, when we argue, we argue on the basis of what are your facts or why did you come up with that or why do you think that way rather than just like you're a jerk. You know, they say we, we value a certain kind of decision making. And, and, and so I think like families oftentimes it, it, it can be a real struggle to identify. We know we got the shared concern, but what are those what are those shared values and what are those moral prescriptions where we go like in this family, it is wrong to do this. Right. Do you have kids at this stage in the game? I have one son. Have you? Because that's that that becomes the interesting question is like, how do you if you know you have a group that has a value system and has some moral prescriptions and some insider understanding, and then you you kind of have that fun experience of like, how do we initiate a new person? How do we teach them? You know what this community is all about, what this family is all about, what it means to be a Vogel. Mm-hmm. Did I say it right? Did I pronounce your last name right? Well, you pronounced my name correctly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, do, do, do you feel like, do uh, I mean, how old, you, how old is your son at this stage in the game? He's not quite eight months. So it's, it's, you're just getting started on this thing. Yeah. That's a fun, that's, that's, I mean, it's a really fun thing. It, it is. I, hope. I mean, there's so many dimensions to it. Uh, since we're talking about values, I'll share that I live in, in Northern California. And uh, I've actually read in the New York Times this week how um, the second number one cause of death among college students is suicide. And um, I know that Northern California here in high schools, there's a crisis of suicide among high school students. And none of this is happening in a vacuum. Um, our culture seems to have a value achievement of achievement and comparison uh, to the point where kids kill themselves, right? And I'm aware that if I just release my son into this culture, he's going to start swimming in, in this toxic soup. And um, I'm taking it very seriously that I want to have him understand that uh, I would like him to embrace failure. And every, everybody that's my hero, hero, and my guess is true for you too, Bart, Everybody that's our heroes failed a lot. And that failure is the required road to be the people we want to be. There is no other road. And I want my son to recognize that as he fails, he is on the road that he has to be to be the person that he wants to be. Uh, and I, And because I want him to learn that, and that is not a value that's in our culture loud enough, I have to invest in making sure that shows up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be incumbent upon you. I get, I mean, 
it's, I mean, I don't, do you feel like you have right now, like when you were in New Haven, you had that dinner group and it sounds like it, it, you know, over time it came to sort of reflect some of you and your wife's, you know, dearest values. Um, Do you, have you, have you, have you sorted out Oakland yet? Do you feel like you have a community to raise them up? In the in the in the in the midst yeah. Well, what I didn't write about in the book is the dinners never stopped. <clears throat> we did we stopped doing the formal dinners for a number of reasons. Uh, my, my wife and I host approximately three times a week in our home, and uh, we were fortunate enough to get to renovate a 19th century home up here. And in so doing, we were able to make a space uh, appropriate for our style of hosting, which are intimate conversations, usually over a hot meal. And one of the things that, that that's great. Uh, is to create a venue that you can invite people into. And if it can't be your home, it can be another space, but nonetheless, a space that we, people who bring people together, can invite people into. And so we have a very robust investment in creating relationships we want to create. And given that's been going on now for many, many years, we have a truly rich and powerful community. And I know that whatever happens to us, I have literally dozens of phone numbers to call and I'm confident people will pick up and they will say, how can I help now? Whether they can help, whether I'm in too deep or not, we'll find out. Uh, But we have those relationships and I I like to think that they will, they will respond because they know when they call me at 3am, the first question I will ask is how can I help? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Today I was over at my new house. Um, we just mm-hmm. moved back to Cincinnati and bought this old battle axe of a house. And my nephews and I were tearing out the walls between the kitchen and the living room or mm-hmm. in the dining room and between the dining room and the, and the living room to make one big space because, you know, it, it's exactly that. You know, you're trying to create a space that you'll be able to do the kind of gatherings that we've always done. And so it's, it's just so interesting for me to hear you talk about like intentionally making a space that would enable you to, 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 to do that. Um, it just, it just makes my heart glad. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, it also makes me think, you know, you and I both value this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, when I think about a vision for a community that has shared values and that, has you know when and when you say membership identity where where a person that's inside that community they know like this is what we're about here this is this is how we act this is this is what we believe whether it's what we believe about walking into burning buildings or whether it's whether it's what we believe about being available at three o'clock in the morning um and this is you know and and the insider information insider understanding sort of emerges over time when people do that lifestyle together then they go then in the end they all know what it's like to get woken up at three in the morning and they joke about that or, or they know what it's like so i think like you like i love it that you have such a clear picture of what a community is and what it looks yeah. like um and i guess what i'm wondering is is like over the next if you're willing like i don't know if you're thinking like i didn't like talking to bart he interrupts too much or like or 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 he, like he doesn't seem to un- get it but like a part of me goes like i just want to walk through the seven principles with mm-hmm. people because i f- i feel like people they can have that vision and they still they don't know how to get from they don't know how to get from vision 
to reality. And I feel like that's where, if we just walk through the seven principles, I feel I, like we can I think that, that sounds like a great idea if uh, you have a sense of what we can discuss that will actually be uh, relevant and applicable. Are you asking, do I? Well, um, well, given that I, you know your listeners better than I do, I'm happy to walk through them. Uh, you know, these, you, you know, because you read the book, your listeners don't know or may not know that we're living in the loneliest generation of American history. And um, none of us have to go very far to find people in our lives that are, quite frankly, desperate for someone to reach out and offer a connection. Now, whether we do that in the right way or they want to connect with us, we get to find out, but we don't have to go very far. And I remember reading in the New York Times just last fall that one out of two Americans lives with debilitating anxiety, and, and, and at least in part that comes from social isolation. One out of two. There's two of us in this call now, <laughs> right? Uh, so if you and I can share ideas that are relevant and practical, that helps anyone listening create connections that don't yet exist, that sounds like a powerful investment on our part. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I really have no doubt that we can do that because the thing is, like, people are so lonely, and 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 I, and I know leaders or like potential leaders, especially you know you, you're talking about the loneliest generation, and then you like imagine being a, a post Christian in Waco, Texas, or in you know Southern Louisiana, and you're so alone, and you're trying to figure out like how can I bring people together in a way that will be meaningful and in a way where we can care about each other and make the world better together. And and so just sharing with them those seven principles and giving them practical things to try, like even tonight, like they've probably picked up some practical things to try, like about invitations and things like that. Um, I just, I, I think it'll be really, really valuable. Well, I'm up for it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. That was me and Charles Vogel. And like I said, not for everybody, although I hope there was something in there for everybody. But Charles and I, like we said, we're going to do seven more episodes, one per chapter of his book. They'll be short. They'll be to the point. And, uh, and there'll be bonus episodes because they're not for everybody. But if you're into it, they're coming. They'll be at the end of the week, um, each week. And uh, in the meantime, you might want to, you know, send me a note and tell me, yeah, that was cool. Or I want to do that. Or I'm into that. And, and like I said, if you became a Patreon supporter, that would be sublime. Um, you can find Charles at Charles Vogel. That's V-O-G-L dot com. And there's all sorts of stuff about him on there and blog posts and everything. I mean, he's he's the kind of public social media person that I aspire to be. Somebody who's regular and consistent and has a classy picture. Um, me, on the other hand, I'm on vacation right now, which is why there's going to be no quote. I, I don't have any, I, I don't have a great movie recommendation for you um, right now. Although I will, like, I've, all the good stuff will come back at you next week. For now, I just wanted to get this in and get this out there. So I will catch you next time. Full of energy and enthusiasm, freshly vacationed, and, uh, and, 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 and looking forward to it. But for now, I am just happy you're here. 
Glad to have spent this time with you. Looking forward to the next time. See you then. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. To leave a question in your own voice to be used in future shows, call the Humanize Me Q-Line at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. Humanize Me is a production of Jax Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.